This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Good morning, Trinity. If you do not know me, my name is Zach Lutz. I'm senior pastor here. We're continuing our sermon series in 1 Samuel. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 19 today. And to start, I wanted to ask you guys what comes to your mind uh, when I say the word evangelism, or maybe what emotion do you feel? Because I think for most of us, hearing the word evangelism strikes a little bit of fear into our hearts, right? It catches us off guard a little bit. We can think that evangelism is really hard, but I think in reality, evangelism is not that hard. We do it naturally all the time. Your friends can probably tell you right away what you're most evangelistic about. TV shows, the new comedian, your favorite podcast, music playlist you found, or book you've been reading. One definition of evangelism is zealous advocacy of a cause. And we're all very willing to zealously advocate for those kinds of causes. However, the word evangelism actually has its roots in a Greek word um, that has to do with sharing the Christian gospel. So another definition of evangelism is spreading the Christian gospel by public preaching or personal witness. And it's this kind of evangelism that I think strikes fear into us the most. Definitely strikes fear into me, and I'm a pastor. I don't know if you can sympathize with that at all, as we've got family and friends, acquaintances and coworkers uh, that can be varying levels of antagonistic to our faith. But on top of that, we've also got a culture right now who is painting Christianity uh, as if Christians are the immoral ones. Have you thought about that? I mean, to believe in a traditional Christian sexual ethic where marriage is between one man and one woman and genders are not chosen but assigned to you by a divine creator and that these genders have certain roles is considered immoral, bigoted, and hateful. Now, if you're visiting with us and maybe hearing this for the first time, please know that Christians uh, are not perfect in anything that they profess to try to live out. We're not perfect in living out our sexual ethic. Divorce for unbiblical reasons is just as common among Christians as non-Christians. And though we believe men and women have distinct roles, uh, there have been many times throughout history that we have carried that too far into oppression. But there's no denying that simply holding these views to our current culture is considered an immoral position. And this makes evangelism particularly difficult. You might say that in Western culture, Christianity for the last 1,700 years has been considered the moral position. If you were to ask anyone in the past 1,700 years who are the people that are moral, even if they did not believe in the gospel, they probably would have responded with Christians. We are in a new territory in some sense in Western culture with our evangelism and our apologetics. The Bible, however, teaches truths that aren't bound by time or by cultures, but are true for all people everywhere. And today we're going to read an Eastern story of a conversation between a father and a son. And although neither of these people would have described what we're reading today as evangelism, we will learn from them today how we ought to evangelize who we ought to evangelize, how we ought to go about doing it, how to feel more confident about it, and ultimately, why we do it in the first place. 
If you would, I'd invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. It comes from 1 Samuel chapter 19, starting in verse 1. 1 Samuel 19, starting in verse 1. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants, that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in the presence, he was in his presence as before. This is God's word to us. May it be seed that falls on fertile soil and produces fruit a hundredfold. For Jesus says in Matthew 13, For truly, truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and to hear what you hear, and they did not see it or hear it. May he bless it for you and for me. Please be seated. So if you've been with us for a few weeks, I do want to acknowledge something about 1 Samuel. Uh, it's not always a chronological story, as if you were to open it and read through it, it feels like he's kind of jumping around in the story. So we've always kind of, we've already heard uh, that Saul and David are butting heads. Um, but we're also going to see that again time and time again. So don't think it's all solved, solved in this passage. If you were to read to the end of 1 Samuel, you would read this two or three more times. If you haven't been with us the past few weeks, I want to give an overview, a little bit of the characters, because it's important. First, Saul is king of Israel. Jonathan is his son. But David had anointed another king. I'm sorry, God had anointed another king, David. Now, why did God anoint David through Samuel? And it's because Saul had sinned against the Lord. He was more interested in building his own kingdom than building the kingdom of God. He was king of God's people. He had a different duty. He betrayed that duty. And so God was handing his kingdom to a man that was after his own heart. Now, it seems that God did not do this completely in secret because Saul gets wind of it, and that's why he's out to kill David. He doesn't want David to usurp his throne. And this is where Jonathan steps in, Saul's son. Jonathan steps in to persuade his father to see David as not just someone who is gunning for his father's throne, but the Lord's anointed king. Jonathan is trying to evangelize his own father, and we can learn a lot from Jonathan's good example of evangelism. Have you ever seen or participated in what we call street or open-air evangelism. You know, it's where they get like a literal soapbox and they stand on it with maybe a megaphone and a microphone and they uh, proclaim out to a passerby crowd. Um, I don't know if you've seen or participated in this, but I, I have participated. I wasn't the actual one preaching, but I was handing out tracts around to the people that, that may have gathered. And, you know, I only participated in a handful of events, but I'm not sure that it was all that persuasive. 
In the handful of events that I went to, I don't think one person came to believe. We may have got some amens from Christians that were passing by. We may have got some panhandlers asking for money or food. But to my knowledge, the absence of relationship made the context of evangelism almost ineffective. Because, let's be honest, Kyle has sat in the office and heard my evangelistic efforts of some YouTube video that I found that I thought was awesome that I just have to share with him, right? But Kyle and I have a relationship. If I go up to random people on the street, I might think it's very impactful for their lives. But to just approach them, most of them are like, okay, crazy, and I'm going to go about my day. The lack of relationship says, you don't know me or what I like or what I need. Now, I want to be careful here. Uh, I'm going to use a a number of examples of evangelism uh, throughout my sermon today. Uh, And I want to be careful because I'm kind of knocking on open-air street evangelism. However, in the New Testament, we do get examples of Paul preaching to crowds. And God can use any number of evangelistic methods to save people. In some sense, there's no such thing as bad evangelism with a good heart. And yet today we're looking at what are some general principles we can follow for the most effective evangelism. Because the New Testament also gives us commands about how to evangelize or the people in the new church. And they were to go to new cities and to synagogues, people that they already knew, homes and friends of people that they already knew, and start sharing the gospel there. Have them invite their friends in. They were to start evangelism through relationships that God had already built for them. Now, Jonathan was probably already talking with others in Israel, about David being the Lord's anointed. Jonathan was next in line for the throne. And you can imagine that he's already telling people, actually, I'm not next in line. David is. You see, we read uh, previous in in some passages, and you'll remember if you've been here, that uh, Jonathan had covenanted his life to David to be loyal to him and never to harm him after the Goliath incident. But to this point, we have not seen Jonathan step in to persuade his father at all. Family is often the hardest to evangelize, right? Jonathan hears his father's plan, is ordered by his commanding officer that David was to be put to death. And you can almost imagine the sinking feeling that Jonathan had. This is wrong. And I'm in a particular God-given position to address this person in power. We learned earlier that Saul was prone to violent rage. He threw a spear at David when David was trying to help him. And it appears that in future chapters, Saul will even be violent towards Jonathan, his own son. So much so that in chapter 20, Jonathan will have to add this qualifier, if I return from my father's presence. He was worried about his own father killing him. I could imagine, again, that hearing his father's command and realizing his particular position and relationship to his father, he felt the burden, the necessity to evangelize those that God had already put him in relationship with. And this is the first thing that we learned from Jonathan, that compelling evangelism starts with those relationships that God has already given us. And it humbles us, right? Because evangelizing strangers on the street uh, feels like there might be little to no consequence. But evangelizing our friends and family has serious consequences. 
Are there any tips that we can learn from Jonathan about how to evangelize family members? Well, there's a few. Jonathan doesn't shame Saul in front of his court, but talks to him one-on-one in a field. In verse 3, he tells David that if he learns anything, he'd tell David. So it appears that Jonathan was willing to ask some questions of his father before he was to speak. We might also assume that in Jonathan's general life as a faithful warrior that we've read about previously, um, and a faithful son, that he had earned immense respect by his father. Often a faithful Christian life lived before others merits us respect to speak on a subject when a door is opened. But really the point is that when the door is opened, Jonathan doesn't shy away from his calling to evangelize those, but even in the most tender and dangerous of relationships, Jonathan takes the plunge. He accepts the risk. Whether physical risk or just awkward risk, he challenged his father's decision, which was a dicey thing to do, but especially in the day and age that Jonathan lived, he also challenged the order of a commanding officer. And he did all of this to try to convince his father to see that David is God's anointed one. I wonder if we take the same plunge into awkward, risky conversations with those that we've been put into relationship with. I know that some of you do, and I know that they are awkward conversations, and that they've been risky and vulnerable, and maybe even there's been some loss. Evangelizing through these closest of relationships that God gives us probably won't include all the same uh, layers or risks that Jonathan had, but we can learn from Jonathan that the most compelling evangelism starts with seizing those God-given relationships, recognizing who God has put us into contact with and seizing the moment when they arrive. So our first point is seizing those relationships that God has already given us. But Jonathan not only shows us who we should evangelize, but also teaches us how we should persuade. Now, I think this is what most of us are interested in when we think of evangelistic methods. We want our evangel cubes or our Romans road or our 12-step program that just makes it foolproof, right? We just want to be able to evangelize and people can't get out of it. It's like we want to have all the answers. But I want to ask you a question. If you're trying to persuade a three-year-old to do something, do you go about doing it positively or negatively? So negatively would be like by my own authority because I said so. Positively, positively would be like trying to have some sort of fun spin on it. And I can tell you, as a father of a three-year-old, it is much easier to take the positive route because three-year-olds want to fight back hard. With Joaquin, my three-year-old, I'm often trying to paint it as a fun thing, something to celebrate when we have to pick up the cars. And we can be like, come on, Joaquin, let's pick up the cars. We'll pretend that they're flying back to their home. Woo! And he's like, yeah, let's do it. Now, this makes sense with three-year-olds. But having a positive spin on things seems maybe a little bit belittling to adults. But I want to ask how you maybe try to persuade your wife or husband. Honey, I'd really like to buy this thing. Let me tell you all of the ways it's going to benefit your life. We all become excellent salesmen. Excellent salesmen. And the best salesmen always try to persuade with the positive, with the benefit. And Jonathan was no different. In verse 4, he says, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because, this is good for you, he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. Verse 5, And not just good to you, but to all of Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. 
The most effective evangelism persuades from the good, the benefit, and the joy. Now, when you evangelize, where is your tendency to start? And I think for most of us, we're just kind of uncomfortable with the awkwardness on where to start. And we start with, well, Jesus saved me from my sin, and he can save you from yours too. But for those who don't understand their own sin or what sin really is, that really isn't a compelling place to start. It may not be very compelling, even though it's true. To persuade from the good, you have to know that person well enough to know where their heart longs for the good, where their heart aches. You might be tempted to start addressing their sin, but have you prayerfully considered why that sin is so attractive to them in the first place? Why it seems so necessary for them? Jonathan seems to have done this, prayerfully considered uh, why Saul's sin was so attractive uh, for his father. Saul wanted good for himself and for his kingdom. David seemed to be taking that away, to be an usurper, dividing the kingdom. And so Saul is doing his duty to protect the kingdom and ordering David's death. But Jonathan reminded him that David had been good for Saul, good for all Israel. And the things that David did brought Saul joy. If you'll remember, Saul was prone to these kind of uh, depressive fits of, of rage and violence. And that's why David was playing music for him to try to help him. You can almost imagine Jonathan saying, in those moments, what you really want is joy, right? David brought you joy. Now, I'm anticipating some objections uh, to my statement that you need to start with the good. I, and maybe I just want to kind of head those off. Zach, are you saying that we avoid calling out their sin? No, of course not. Neither does Jonathan. He calls Saul, Saul's actions sin, but he doesn't stop there as if Jonathan thought himself holier than his father because they sinned in different ways. He uses his redeemed imagination to see the good that Saul truly wanted and how the gospel applied to it. David brought you joy. Can we look at the sins of our family members, friends, co-workers, acquaintances, and use our redeemed imaginations to see the good that people truly want, to identify what drives them to their sin in the first place? Do we know our Bibles and Jesus well enough to make a compelling case for why Jesus offers something better? I'm going to let you in on a little secret. We, we, we don't know our Bibles well enough. <laughs> we will do a faulty job at, at our evangelistic efforts at trying to persuade the good. Uh, let me give you an example. Right now, what is at stake in our world is often people trying to define their own identity through their sexuality, their gender, or their lack thereof. Can we use our redeemed imaginations to identify what they might most deeply desire and how the Bible answers this desire? Now, to correctly identify the desire, we have to have a relationship with the person because everyone um, is uniquely created by God and different things drive them. We have to ask questions, get to know them. For example, a high school friend of mine who now says that he's non-binary has expressed to me that he feels that his highest goal is to be able to define himself explain who he is, even manifest it for himself. And if he can't, he may never know who he could have been or who he really is now. He felt discomfort in what culture said he should be, 
And so he felt broken, out of place. He found an affinity with the stories of the gay community and culture. Now, make no mistake, we are all broken. We break ourselves, we're broken by our parents, by those who should have protected us, and my friend's story was no different. Neglected by parents and abused by relatives and compounded by his own sin over his life. As a Christian, I could recognize that he was broken and had been broken by others, and he could in some sense acknowledge the same. But having been abandoned by those around him, he listened to the culture's heartbeat that said he was solely responsible for defining his own story, that he needed to find out who he really was. And then when he found that definition, that he was responsible for finding a tribe of people that supported that vision of himself. When he found all of this, when he'd identified it and correctly achieved it and found that tribe of people, he supposed that he would be free, at peace with himself and with others, and that the brokenness of his story would fade into the background. Of course, the Bible's story about identity is different than our cultures, and I wanted to share that with him. And I'm going to be perfectly honest, our friendship had to help sustain some really bad explanations of what God's good for him was on my end. (laughs) Does that make sense? Like, I gave some bad answers in our relationship. But because we had a relationship, there was a context in which those could be heard and even pushed back on. I needed a better explanation of what God's good for him was. Now, our friendship has waned in recent years, so I've never quite gotten to this uh, distillation to be able to share with him. Um, But in order to effectively evangelize, I needed to hear what his heart truly longed for, to be at peace with himself and to be at peace with others. How would I address that from the Bible? And first, I might address that the burden of self-definition according to the Bible story, is too big for any of us to do. We are too finite to define ourselves properly. To be able to define the entirety of who we are, we will necessarily reduce ourselves to just our sexuality, just our work performance, just our physical feats, just our ability to have children, or any other number of things. We're too finite to define ourselves properly. But building on that, I want to ask him if his self-definition has really brought him the peace that he expected with himself and with others. You see, at first he was gay, then he was bi, now he's non-binary. And his explanation is that self-discovery is a process and it might continue forever, but I wonder if it's a process of continual self-doubt, writhing internal noise as well as writhing external noise. And I'd want to ask him whether or not a definition of God's beloved child might be better suited for peace with himself and with others. Of course, he's still going to have objections about the Bible's perceived patriarchy and abuse. Of course, there's going to be questions concerning what sexuality is and ought to be used for, but the heart of evangelism must address the heart, the desire that drives them. Like Jonathan, we ought to speak well of the Lord's anointed in front of others and persuade with the good, the benefit, the joy. So evangelism starts with the relationships that God has given us, and we persuade from the good, is our second point. But you know, in my conversations with my friend, the evangelism has never quite took. He still doesn't believe, right? And this can cause some serious doubt uh, in our own abilities and what's going on in the world, 
Were my arguments insufficient? Was my life such a wreck that he could perceive uh, my hypocrisy, which was most certainly true? Um, how do we have confidence in our evangelism? Sometimes in our evangelism, it's actually easy to brush off people's rejection of our evangelism. Uh, maybe it's because the people that we're trying to evangelize have been really mean to us, maybe, maybe abused us. And so when they walk away, uh, we secretly relish the fact that our evangelism was unsuccessful. Good. I didn't want to spend eternity with them anyway. I was just doing it because God commands it. Now, doing something because God commands it alone uh, isn't a wrong reason for obeying God. After all, we should still obey him if we don't understand his commands. But we should always seek to live out the heart of God. And the heart of God is a desire that all should be saved. Right? Saying it this way, good, I didn't want to spend eternity with them anyway, reveals something sinister going on within our own hearts. It probably reveals that we haven't really forgiven that person for what they've done to us and that our primary issue is with God. It also probably reveals that we don't really have the heart of evangelism quite right yet because the heart of evangelism has to yield the fact that true transformation is out of our hands. A hard-hearted response to our evangelism should cause us to cry out in prayer to the only one who can truly transform my friend I was speaking about before still doesn't believe, and I had to pray for him without ceasing. But I can rest in that even if he doesn't turn and repent, it wasn't because my evangelistic efforts were faulty. They were. <laughs> the only person that can bring true transformation is Jesus. But it frees us also to be bold with our evangelism. Saul will heed Jonathan's word and relent from killing David in this passage. But Saul's life won't be truly transformed. In the following chapters, as we'll read, his father will continue to deride Jonathan, belittle Jonathan, and seek to kill David time and time again. Saul is wicked, malicious, and murdering. But as you read this story, I think you'll see time and time again, um, let's focus on David first. David can't help but to love not only Jonathan, but also Saul. The very man who's trying to kill him. There's going to be opportunities for David to kill Saul, and he won't take them. David even gives, uh, defers respect to the king of God's people. The Lord's anointed David desired that a wicked, malicious, murdering king be brought back from the brink of his own destruction. True transformation wasn't in David's hands. And he knew that. And true transformation was never in Jonathan's hands either. The best technique, the best answers, the most skillful exegesis of God's word can't transform people, which is why Jonathan later is going to have to say, if I don't come back from my father's presence, I still must try. If we are mocked, we need not be vindictive or ashamed because our evangelistic efforts appear ineffective or backwards or immoral, nor can we stop evangelizing. We keep evangelizing in the seeming face of failure because we know that the only one who can truly transform people is able to save people even from the brink of their own wicked, malicious, and murdering destruction. This is who Jesus is. 
This gives us the freedom to not take rejection too personally, but also to be bold like Jonathan in evangelizing those who are on the brink of their own destruction, to recognize those God-given relationships we've been given, to persuade with the good of the gospel, and then release the results to God. Now, we still haven't quite addressed why we do it in the first place. <laughs> why do we evangelize? As we mentioned in the beginning, evangelism is really hard because we've become the immoral ones. Arguably for the first time in Western history, in 1,700 years, Christianity is immoral, bigoted, reckless, embarrassing. You know, it's the same with Saul and Jonathan. Saul thought Jonathan was all these things. Uh, Saul could not comprehend why Jonathan would ever yield to this new king. Jonathan bowing to David uh, and defending David meant that Jonathan was yielding something that was rightfully his, right? Like Jonathan was next for the throne. And Jonathan is yielding that to another person. Saul thought Jonathan foolish, reckless, and weak, but more than that, immoral. The crown prince is abandoning his post. Through threats to his life, Jonathan will still be drawn back to evangelize his father time and time again. And he will keep putting up with the onslaughts of insults from his own father, threats to his own life. He never gets vindictive or angry. And it's because Jonathan has come to know the goodness of the Lord's anointed himself. The heart of evangelism, the persuasion that's truly effective, comes from those who have truly known the goodness of the Lord's anointed to them. That knows that no matter what dangers or awkwardness they may face, that they are never cast out of his presence. To know what they were redeemed from themselves, so that they don't need a holier-than-thou confrontation, but can honestly confront someone on their sin and how Jesus offers something better, because we have tasted it. We too were blinded in our own sin. We too in our religious hypocrisy shouted, crucify him. We too cheered as God himself was nailed to a cross, shouting, forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. This is the heart of evangelism. We have come to know the Lord's, Lord's anointed Jesus and have tasted the salvation and the goodness for ourselves. And it was so generous and so powerful that we are convinced that there is no one that he cannot save, that there is no one that he cannot convince, that his goodness answers every objection, and that he is able to save. What takes away the fear of evangelism is reminding ourselves of just how good the story is, but not just how good the story is abstractly or to someone else, but how good the story is for you me. It means reminding ourselves that we are chief among sinners, reminding ourselves what God's anointed would go through to rescue us. It means remembering how Jesus has brought us joy, thinking of those ways that he's answered the deepest longings of our hearts. It means reminding ourselves that we did nothing to deserve or earn it, but that salvation was in God's hand and by God's mercy. The heart of evangelism means having the heart of Jesus. To be considered a foolish, reckless, weak, and immoral, to have people embarrassed by you, 
We have to love and desire to follow the one who would be considered foolish, reckless, weak, and immoral, who sacrificed whatever dignity he had left to be crucified for our salvation. Telling ourselves this story over and over again is why we gather together, why God commands us to gather together on Sunday mornings so we can feast on God's good news to us so that we can hear the gospel. And although we don't necessarily think of the word evangelize in this way, because uh, that word evangel kind of comes from a Greek word that means gospel, we come to be evangelized every Sunday. We come to know that we can have peace with God, peace with ourselves, and peace with others. And what better way to know that you have peace with God and peace with others than through a meal? God's anointed the night that he was betrayed, was having dinner with his friends, the same friends that would abandon him and leave him alone, the same friends that he would have to rescue with his own body and his blood. And that night, he took bread, and having blessed it, he broke it, and he turned and he gave it to his disciples, as I am ministering in his name, and I'll give it to you. And Jesus said to them, take this bread and eat it. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, and after he had blessed it and given thanks, he said to his disciples, this is the cup of the new covenant, which is poured out for the remission of your sins. Take and drink. Now, this table isn't Trinity Church's table. It's not Zach's table. It's not our denomination's table. It is the Lord Jesus Christ's table. If you know the good news that Christ is for you, If you've been baptized into his body and his blood, then this table is for you to come and know that you have peace with God and peace with others. If you're not sure about this good news, if you haven't been baptized, then scripture asks you not to partake of this part of the service uh, because uh, it is possible to actually be dangerous for you. That's why we issue this warning. And so we ask that if you have questions that, that you need answered about who Jesus is, the salvation that he gives us, how far he was willing to go for us, and why the Lord's anointed is so much better than everything else you're striving after. Come and talk to myself or Kyle. We'd love to answer those questions and invite you to this table another week. In a moment, I'm going to pray, and then we can come down the center aisle to these two serving stations on my right and my left. Uh, If you need gluten-free bread is available. If you need it, please just notify your server when you're there. And then there is red wine and clear grape juice. Please take according to your conscience. If you would, please pray with me. Lord Jesus, you were not afraid to condescend to evangelize us, to become incarnate in body and blood, to show us the love of God to us. Jesus, we ask that we might see this humility, that we might see how you built relationships with us, how you showed us the good, how you challenged us from our sin, and yet how you provided the only way of salvation to bring us back from the brink of our own destruction by your body and your blood. Father, I pray that these elements by the power of your spirit might be transformed to spiritual nourishment that we might know that we have peace with God and peace with one another. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.